You're listening to Oxfam India's Responsible Biz, where the conversation is about business, human rights, and the people at the center of it all. My name is Sri Radhakrishnan, and with me today is Justine Nolan. Justine is an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. She's also a visiting professorial scholar at the New York University's Stern Center for Business and Human Rights. Justine's research focuses on the intersection of business and human rights, in particular, corporate responsibility for human rights and modern slavery. Thank you, Justine, for being with us today and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Given that your recent work on business and human rights has primarily focused on the uh, issue of modern slavery, can you tell us a little bit more about what is modern slavery, you know, its um, defining features and how this term has come into being? Sure. Modern slavery is a relatively new term, and some people, the UN often refers to it as contemporary slavery. Um, but it really got resonance when the UK passed their Modern Slavery Act in 2015. And modern slavery is an umbrella term that incorporates other internationally legally defined um, issues, such as slavery, servitude, debt bondage, um, might be de- deceptive recruiting, um, all of these things, and forced, most importantly, forced labour, which we're going to look at in supply chains. But all of these come within the concept of modern slavery. And modern slavery is this non-legal term that captures all of these. And so all each of those terms is individually defined in international law and often in individual countries' laws. Um, and so each country will define often what slavery is, what debt bondage is, um, and usually they're consistent with the laws of the United Nations and the International Labour Organization. But you mentioned about you know the difference between modern slavery and how UN refers to it as contemporary forms of slavery. Where does the difference lie? Is it more is modern slavery more of an emotive term or, and less legal? What, what's the is there, is there a dichotomy between the two? Yeah, I mean, they're essentially the same thing, but in terms of their definition. But modern slavery was a term coined, I think, really to grab people's attention. So modern slavery is contemporary forms of slavery. I mean, when a lot of people think about slavery, they think about, you know, hundreds of years ago and people in chains. So more commonly now, a lot of this slavery might be defined by people in psychological chains or tied to a job as not, but there are still people physically contained. Um but all these concepts of debt bondage or forced labor or forced marriage, all of them come within both contemporary and modern forms of slavery. But the UK, I think, did a, you know, an interesting thing when they when they used the term because it immediately got sort of emotional resonance, particularly with governments and business, because nobody can be in favor of modern slavery. But, you know, forced labor is a little bit more te- technical, even contemporary is not quite so clear. But the term modern slavery is very much in your face and everybody says, you know, I don't want to be associated with that. You're, you're based out of in Australia and um, your recent publication is also talks about um, the new legislation that has come up in Australia on modern slavery. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What's the sort of, you know, the, the evolution of Australia's uh, modern slavery, or rather anti-modern slavery. Yeah. Yes. Um, so there's a growing movement around the world um, to try and figure out how we can regulate better supply chains, particularly in, in respect of, of labour. Um, so the UK passed this Modern Slavery Act, which is a supply chain regulation act, but it only focuses on that issue. And the Australian Act is really um, a, you know, some, a, 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 
reiteration of the UK Act in, in only one sense, um, and that is looking at supply chain regulation and asking businesses to report on modern slavery. And the Australian Act came about because of sustained civil society advocacy, um, support from business, um, and support from some parts of government to sort of do something. And it had helped that the UK already had an Act. Um, but the Australian Act um, repeats one part of the UK Act, which is about companies having to report on their supply chains for the risks of modern slavery. But it also has a couple of advances. So it makes the government um, also report. So the Australian government will have to report on its procurement processes um, in 2020 and its supply chain. Um, and it also is committed to having a central registry where everybody who makes a modern slavery statement and they're all going to be accessible by the public and anybody who wants to read it. Um, it still has some of the problems of the, the UK Act in that there's no real enforcement or compliance mechanisms in there. So it relies on consumers, civil society, investors, um, encouraging and coercing businesses to report, but there's no penalty for not reporting um, other than perhaps reputational damage. So we're going to have to wait and see how well that works out. We've seen a mixed success in the UK on that. So if there is no penalty on um, violations, then where does the law really sort of, you know, seek accountability that what it's actually purported to be for? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And in, and this Act is really, a UK Act and the Australia Act are really in some ways more about process than outcomes. So they're about the idea that what they're asking to report on is companies report on the risks of modern slavery. So they don't actually have to report on if they find modern slavery or, you know, the, the idea is that they would report what they're doing about it. Um, but it's, it's, it's dealing with sort of the whole idea behind these legislations is to make the problem more transparent. By making it more visible, people become more aware, companies will change their behaviour, um, you know, because of they're worried about their reputation. Sometimes that'll work and sometimes it won't. So it might work more for companies that are focused on their brand, so well-known companies. Um, might, might also work better on brand-sensitive sectors, so dealing with consumers, so like apparel and footwear, electronic goods. Um, but it's going to be harder for palm oil industry because a lot of consumers have no idea where palm oil comes from and all the destruction that entails. So the compliance factor is one of the big downfalls of it and we sort of remain to see whether the reputational pull um, will not only make companies report, but it will make them act. So when you talk about reputational pull, I assume that in, in the success of the anti-modern slavery law, a huge role is then played by consumers as well, perhaps more, you know, um, not directly perhaps, but definitely indirectly in terms yeah. of how it's seen. But reputation of companies will only rest with the company. The supply chains run a lot deeper. They are mm. sort of more subterraneous. How does that work? I mean, in your experience, you know, working on the issue of modern slavery and supply chains, how far do you think usually the supply chain transparency and accountability goes? Yeah, so there's a couple of things here. The first one is your point about the consumers. And um, I think there's a little bit of a myth about the ethical consumer. You know, I think there is an ethical consumer. I still think it's a niche industry. It's growing. Um, but it's consumers en masse, um, are, you know, at this stage where we're at now, are perhaps not going to be the magical enforcement. They are important. I think investors might be more important. So investors putting pressure on companies to report. 
So that's one thing. I think consumers clearly have a role and a very important role, but not everything can rest on them. And your other great question is about the supply chain transparency. So a lot of companies, um, when they think of their supply chain, only think as first as far as their first tier, which is often, you know, it might be the final factory, say for a garment, where the finishing and sewing is done. But they're not always thinking about, you know, the tens or sometimes hundreds of suppliers that come from before that, where they source the goods or put together individual components um, of the product. So the idea of these these laws is that the supply chain extends from basically the product at the point of sale to the source. Um, now the laws don't explicitly say that, but that's what the idea is. And so it's the it's this holistic supply chain. It's going to take a bit of work for companies to really get a handle on that. Um, a lot of companies have very good transparency on some of their first tier suppliers, but not even all, and have limited transparency on the rest of their supply chain. But we've seen companies just this year, um, some big companies, make announcements about making their entire supply chain transparent from fields to factories to there. So H&M has come out, Nestle's come out, the Fair Labor Association has said that all its companies will have transparent supply chains. Um, so companies can do it, but it's going to take work on their part. But the idea, if this law is going to work, it's got to have that level of transparency. In fact, Surya Deva often refers to this example that iPhone has... 700 um, suppliers for its phone and when mm. one if there's a problem with one supplier the apple company can immediately find out where the problem is and rectify it but perhaps that mm. same sort of you know will to act needs to be on more human rights yeah. grounds which so far is not that common um the other thing that i wanted to ask you about is that australia has come up and not just Australia, but I think New South Wales yes. has a state anti-modern slavery law yes. and there's a federal law yes. as well. What are the more sort of uh, high-risk um, areas of you know, industries in, in Australia where the anti-modern slavery law will actually or rather may have an impact? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thing about modern slavery is a lot of people think about it, particularly in countries like Australia and the UK, as something that's happening somewhere else that it's not, you know, it's not within our borders and it's good to do something about it, but it doesn't directly impact us. But what we're seeing is that modern slavery, you know, is, is in every country in the world in some form. And so in countries like Australia and the UK, um, it might have different risk sectors. But in Australia, areas around farm workers in agriculture, um, we know there's forced labour in those supply chains, construction workers, in the cleaning industry, um, in the security industry. And so what a lot of these sectors have in common is that they often have transi transitional or seasonal workers or migrant workers. So some of those workers are dependent on visas, they're more vulnerable, they're less likely to complain about conditions. Um, but modern slavery is happening you know, on fishing boats in the UK as well as fishing boats in Thailand. It's happening on farms in Australia and farms in, in India. And so modern slavery is something that connects all of us as consumers, companies, investors, um, wherever we are. So it's in our backyard and it's also thousands of miles away. I know your new book on modern slavery is coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about what that publication is going to be all about? Yeah, so I've um, co-written a book um, with a colleague, Martin Bosma, um, from UTS in Sydney. And the book is called Addressing Modern Slavery and it's going to be out in September. And what we were trying to do with this book is... Um, 
not have an academic public, you know, publication, but have something that people could read and, and understand the concept. So we're just focused in this book really on forced labor and supply chains. So we're trying to relate the book to us as consumers, as investors, or people working in companies, um, what modern slavery looks like, how supply chains rule our lives, you know, how these companies rule our lives, and also talk a little bit about the broader business and human rights movement and ways that people are looking at addressing modern slavery. So, it, the, you know, we sort of look at the role of companies, we look at the role of governments, um, we look at the role of investors, we look how technology might be addressing modern slavery, um, you know, and, and then we look at the laws. And so, you know, ultimately, of course, we say all of these things uh, are needed, um, that there's no one magic solution to stopping modern slavery. Um, but we definitely believe that both governments and business have a very powerful role um, in this. What has been um, Australia's sort of uh, the larger public's sort of uptake on the new modern slavery law? I mean, how has that been received by people? So the, the law just came into, um, was just started effect this year, in January, and companies won't have to report till about mid-2020 because they'll have 18 months to, to do it. There was a lot of publicity around the, the law as it started. There were a lot of businesses in favour of the law. Um, partly they saw it because some of the leading businesses were already doing some reporting under the UK Act or trying to make their supply chains more transparent. So they wanted to even the playing field a little bit um, so that others were putting in some work as well. Um, there was definitely some resistance um, from companies as well and from sectors of the government. But in the end, it was a pretty concerted campaign. So it's been pretty positive, um, partly because who can be against modern slavery? So it's very hard for a company to come out and say, we're, you know, we're against this law because we're in favour of modern slavery. Um, the big question will be not only are they, if they are in favour you know, of, of the process of the law, but what they do. So there's a danger of you know, what I would call sort of really symbolic or cosmetic compliance, where they sort of tick the box and do a report without really investigating their supply chains or finding what's going on. But the whole purpose behind this law is to understand your supply chain and find out where their problems. So it talks about modern slavery, but really, you know, when we think about modern slavery, modern slavery is on this continuum of labour exploitation. So in Australia, there may, may be more common in a workplace to find, um, you know, wage theft, wage underpayment, forced overtime or dangerous working conditions, you know, violations of health and safety laws rather than modern slavery. But a workplace, if they're doing this properly, should be looking at all those things when they're examining their supply chain. So that hopefully the law will encourage companies to take a more holistic approach about looking at how they um, ensure that labour rights are respected, not only in their operations, but also in their supply chains. And when you started working on business and human rights, uh, was it already a sort of an evolved area? What actually brought you to this area of work? Mm. So um, when I started working at it, which was a long time ago, um, now in the um, sort of mid to late 1990s, I was living in the United States and there was um, a growing interest at that time from university students about sweatshops um, because US students were worried that some of their branded university gear um, by big companies like Nike and Adidas and Reebok was being made in sweatshops. And at that time, the focus a lot was on Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Vietnam. And students started to get interested in this. I was in the US and I was studying and um, I thought that's, that's an issue I'm really interested in. So I went to work for a human rights organization um, and I started 
their uh, business and human rights program with them. And then as part of that, we then worked with a larger group to start something called the Fair Labor Association, which is a monitoring and labor rights organization um, now. And I was interested in not only what was happening, you know, sort of the interest in the US, but I was interested in figuring out a way to get businesses' attention. And when, we, when I first started working in this area, businesses were not interested in talking to us. So it was not a question of, at that, at that stage, it was, it was, you know, companies were saying, it's not our responsibility. You can't talk to me about workers in Vietnam because they're not my workers. They're not my employees. So it was hard to get in the door. And now I'm finding, you know, many years later, that the difference is, is that companies are not so much talking about, you know, it's not our responsibility. They are, some of them are talking about what can we do, and which is a very big change. There's still plenty of companies who are not interested in, in this area and trying to hide around it. But there's definitely many companies now who are not saying, their immediate response is not, it's not my problem. They're sort of saying, we understand the problem, um, we're not quite sure what to do. Um, but they're more, you know, perhaps stepping up a little bit more to own the problem, if not always doing what I would like them to do. Thank you, Justine, for agreeing to speak on this show. Thank you for having me in India. It's been great this week. Her latest book, Addressing Modern Slavery, co-authored with Martin Bozma, is out in stores now. You can also read up more on all the resources mentioned during this podcast. The UK Modern Slavery Act and Australia's New South Wales Modern Slavery Act on our website. This was the first installment of the Responsible Biz podcast. If you like listening to our show, then please like it, subscribe to it, and share it. Thank you once again. This is your host, Tri Radhakrishnan, signing off until next time. This podcast was produced with the financial support of the European Union. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Oxfam India and do not necessarily reflect the views of the European Union. To know more about responsible business conduct, visit www.responsiblebiz.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at BizResponsible.